Hey, thanks so much, um, Roger. And it's just great to have you with us. I've just been scanning through some of the uh, the screens in uh, grid view and seeing uh, some friendly faces and people that I've uh, met before. So wonderful to have you with us um, this evening. And uh, we really hope that it will be a helpful time. As we mentioned at the beginning, there will be a time for questions at the end. So please do feel free to um, text your questions um, to that number or to go onto the um, Slido website, sli.do, and then just put in the event code 937937 and you can ask your questions in that way. It's all up on the screen again, I see now. Um, so that will uh, allow you to, to do that. And um, I'll say some more words by way of introduction in a moment. But just to get us thinking about this topic tonight, I thought it'd be helpful to get some feedback uh, from from the audience, as it were, scattered all around the world as we are. And so I want you just to imagine that you're having a conversation. I guess at the moment it would have to be on the phone or on Zoom or something like that, rather than over a coffee uh, or in a restaurant. But having a conversation with a friend or a family member who's not a Christian. And in the midst of conversation, they say this to you. They say, ah, you're a Christian. Tell me why. Well, actually, I'm not going to give you the question. I want you to give me the question. I want you to think, what would be the question that you would least want to get asked in such a conversation? Um, the kind of question where you're thinking, gosh, how am I going to answer that question faithfully as a Christian, but also maintain this friendship uh, with this person? The kind of question that makes you pray for the immediate return of Christ. You know, those kind of questions. Well, think about what that might be. And then if you can, just send it either to the number or to the um, to the Slido app. And what Janice is going to do is she's just going to have a glance down and in a few moments time, she will um, read out some of those questions that we've had. So if you've got thoughts, um, text or put them on Slido now. Um, the details are all there on the screen. What is the question that you would least want to get asked? Um, the question that would fill you with the greatest fear. That's what we're going to be thinking about. Um, whilst you're doing that, let me just say something that's completely disconnected, which will give you a chance to do that uh, before we dive into um, listening to uh, what some of those responses might be. And that is just to say, um, uh, one of the things we found over the last few weeks is that there are some really wonderful and unique opportunities that we're having to share the gospel at this particular moment. Um, and although we're in a very strange situation, there are still opportunities. Um, my diary got completely cleared out, as many other people's diaries did. Uh, all my travel to university missions got cancelled um, uh, when the lockdown came in. But um, one of the wonderful things that's happened is I've had some fantastic opportunities to do online evangelistic talks. Roger said on Saturday there's going to be an online event, and a number of student groups have hosted um, online events on Zoom like this or broadcasting onto Facebook or YouTube, and a number of churches have done the same. And it's been wonderful to see literally hundreds and hundreds of people um, coming to hear the gospel. Many people who wouldn't come to a physical event, maybe, but they'll come uh, because it's safe. They can watch at a distance, as it were, and interact in that way. And it's been great to have people writing in, asking for copies of the gospel, um, people really engaging in that way. We've always had question times at the end and people asking um, good questions. And one real encouragement, we've had some fantastic opportunities with our neighbours um, during this time. We live in a block of flats. And so um, because we have a communal garden area and balconies, uh, facing onto it. We've had some great opportunities to chat to different people um, in the flats and get to know them. We've also organised um, online Zoom quizzes. Uh, we've got another one tomorrow night with all the neighbours taking part. Um, and on Easter Sunday morning, we've got everyone on their balconies singing Easter hymns uh, to celebrate the resurrection, which is wonderful. Um, but anyway, last Sunday, I was preaching for Highfields Church in Cardiff, an evangelistic sermon, kind of different service. And uh, 
we just sent out the link on our WhatsApp group for all of our neighbours to invite them to come. And we had over half of our neighbours in the block watching the, 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 the Sunday morning service um, there at Highfields. And I thought, what a strange world we live in, that I'm preaching in Cardiff, my dining room. And in doing so, I can reach my neighbours who live there next door. Um, but just to say, we may feel, well, we're stuck inside and we can't do anything. But just to say there are things that we can do. Um, and let's think creatively about that. So I've taken Roger's encouragements. Uh, I've got a whole stack of uh, his tracks here, and uh, I've been writing to various folks this week as well, and including tracks, um, and uh, and who knows where they might end up and who might read them. So that's just by way of uh, encouragement to say, let's use this opportunity um, to uh, take opportunities for the gospel in this way. Now, hopefully that's given you a bit of a time um, to uh, send in some of your questions. I don't know whether Janice is up for um, responding to some of them, if we can cut over to Janice. Michael, we've got lots of things and we're just trying to process them at the moment. So you need to keep talking. I'll keep talking. OK, we've got so many coming back. Well, I'll take that as an encouragement that everyone's um, interacting in that way. OK, well, we'll carry on going. Let me explain what I want us to do over the next half an hour or so. And that is to basically see... The objections that people have to the gospel, these kind of objections that we might fear, don't have to be obstacles um, that stop us from doing evangelism, but they can actually be opportunities to evangelism. They're not obstacles that stop us doing evangelism, but they're opportunities um, for the gospel if we think about them in the right way. Uh, we, uh, Roger was saying helpfully last week, when people raise questions, even if they're negative questions or hostile questions, they're an open door um, for conversations about Christ. And that's what I want us to explore um, tonight. Now, I'll give you a little heads up. We're not going to necessarily respond to every single question that you've just put in because we haven't got time, although there will be time in the Q&A at the end if you've got specific questions that you do still want to raise. What I'd like us to do this evening is to think of a number of principles that will help us to have more confidence whatever objections or questions people raise. Um, so whatever the issues are, um, we can have some principles in our minds to help us know how we can respond to these in a positive way. Um, I've got nine principles. Um, I warn you, my second one is the longest of all. So after, if after the second point you're thinking, I'm going to be here all night, we'll make much faster progress once we get to number three, okay? Um, and uh, if Janice needs a bit longer to process stuff, I think I'll dive in and we'll probably pause halfway through uh, to get some feedback uh, from them. You may want to, to grab a pen and a piece of paper. Um, I'd normally have a handout um, but you can uh, jot down the headings at least as we go through. So here are nine principles to help us turn objections into opportunities rather than obstacles. And the first is this. They all begin with B. I'm inspired by Warren Wearsby tonight, you might say. Um, his commentaries all began with B, didn't they? But here they go. Number one, be wise. We need to think about why people are asking the questions that they do. Roger, helpfully, last week talked about the RH principle. I remember when I was 18, half a lifetime ago, hearing Roger do that in a training session. I've always remembered it. So it's very helpful uh, to bear that in mind. Why are people asking the questions they do? Now, let's just take, for instance, the question of suffering. That's a common question that often comes up. We could dive in, couldn't we, to immediately try to answer and give a generic answer to the problem of suffering. But people can ask that question for lots of different reasons, can't they? Just think for a moment what they might be. People might ask that because they are suffering personally. Um, something's happened to them or to someone they love. They might ask that question, though, because they know that's the difficult question you ask Christians because it catches them out and they don't know how to answer it. 
Or they might ask it because they're looking at a war or a conflict on TV. Or, of course, in the current situation, they might ask it because they're thinking of coronavirus and all the implications that's come about because of that. Now, those are very different reasons for asking the same question, aren't they? And the way we respond is going to have to be quite different. If someone's asking it personally, then we need to speak on the level of people's emotions and speak into people's experience, not just give a philosophical answer. If people are asking it simply to try and catch us out, maybe a philosophical answer to begin with might be helpful. But we need to know how to address it. Similarly, if people are asking questions about suffering that's caused by humans, like a, a war or a conflict, we might want to address our response as talking about how suffering is often caused by the actions of individuals and how people's actions can lead to suffering in other people's lives. But of course, if people are thinking about a natural evil, if we're to use that terminology, like a virus or an earthquake, speaking about the actions of individuals doesn't necessarily get to the heart of where they're coming from. So that's the first principle. We need to be wise and think, why is this person asking the question they do? That's, by the way, why I'm not going to just give you an answer to all of these questions, because although there might be 10 popular questions, there might be 10 reasons why people ask each of those questions. We need to be wise. That's the first principle. Ready when you are, Michael. Ah, great. OK, well, let's take a pause there before I dive into big number two. And let's go across to Janice and hear what some of the questions are that have come in. Janice, are you with us? Yeah. You're on. Great. Yeah. Yeah, just unmuting. Um, okay then, Michael. So the questions that make people want to run. So you're telling me that my grandma or mother or loved one is actually in hell? Mm -hmm. I don't believe in God. Why does a good God allow so much suffering? Will babies who die go to heaven if they've had no chance to make a commitment to Jesus? Why don't you believe the science of evolution? Why does religion cause so many wars? Why do babies suffer chronic illnesses? But a lot of questions just basically about homosexuality and transgenderism. Anything, a question like that seems to, uh, to have the effect. Mm. Um, and why does God sometimes encourage genocide in the Bible? Is that enough to be going on with? That's enough to be going on with. Thank you. Well, well that's really helpful. Thank you for, for feeding those in. Sorry if we didn't get every question asked, but I think that probably gives us a sense of what some of the popular ones are. I've often started um, a similar seminar like this with that question. And I find the top three almost always um, revolve around issues of suffering, issues of sex and sexuality, um, and issues about hell and judgment. Um, they often seem to be the three big ones that we fear getting asked. Um, and actually, that very first question is a quite helpful illustration of what we're talking about in being wise. People might ask the question about hell. That might be a, a generic kind of question, just asking about a point of theology. But, but often it's much more personal, isn't it? It might be behind that um, a question of someone's loved one. Um, what's happened to them? And what does that mean for me? And if I'm going to trust Christ and be in heaven. What about my family member who may not be? So we need to be wise. That's the first principle. But let's bear in mind those questions as we think about these other principles and hopefully uh, they will help. The second one of which I have a number of sub points is this. Be questioning. Respond to questions with a question. Now, that's in one sense very helpful for us, isn't it? Because 
uh, we don't know what lies behind people's questions. If we're going to tailor our answers to be appropriate, we need to have a bit more information very often. And so asking someone a question like, um, what makes you ask that question particularly? Or if they were asking about suffering, what kind of suffering did you have in mind? Or, or so on, can help us think about how, where to go with our answer. But this is what I really want us to get. Asking questions doesn't just help us, but it can also help the person we're speaking to. See, questions are quite powerful. Um, here's a little trivia question. I'm not going to get people to raise their hands, but just think for a moment. What's the first person uh, to ask a question in the Bible? The first question in the Bible. I wonder if you can think what it is. Well, actually, the first question in the Bible is from the devil, isn't it? Did God really say that you must not eat uh, from this tree? The second question is from God. Um, where are you? Um, often people think that's the first, but if you look at it. Now, you might argue that Satan's question is more of a mock than a question um, or a sneer, um, as, as one theologian puts it. But, but those are two questions. Now, did the devil ask Eve that question because he didn't know what God had said? I'm thinking the answer is no. <laughs> did God ask where Adam and Eve were because he didn't know where they were. I mean, it's like, were they behind the oak tree? <laughs> well, no, of course God knew where they were. So why, so why were the questions being used? Because questions are powerful. Questions are powerful to create doubt in the case of Satan, but also questions are powerful to reveal truth or to convict of sin, as God um, shows in the use of his question. I wonder if you know who in the Bible asks the most questions well, actually, it's, it's Jesus. Um, he asks um, apparently over 200 questions um, if you put uh, all of the gospel accounts together. And again, why does Jesus ask questions? Is it because he doesn't know what's going on? Well, no, he's not in the same situation as us, is he? He knows what's in someone's heart. But Jesus asks questions not for his benefit, but for the benefit of the people he's speaking to. So how do questions help us help other people? Here are some sub points, OK? Um, Firstly, this is all under question point two. Um, it forces people to think through their assumptions. Everyone has assumptions, don't they, about God, about Christianity, and often they're wrong. And because those assumptions are wrong, the questions they ask will, will sometimes force us into difficult places. Now, let me give you an example from, from the ministry of Jesus. Remember the rich young ruler, he comes running up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you arrive with Jesus, what will we say? Well, we'll probably get out a gospel trap. We'll start explaining uh, the ABC of salvation. But Jesus doesn't. He responds with a question, doesn't he? Why do you call me good? And why does Jesus respond to this question with a question? Well, think about the rich young ruler's question. What is the assumption that lies behind his question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? The assumption is that eternal life is something that you can earn. There is something that you can do to get it. And so he's saying, well, I know I need to do something. Jesus, what is it that I need to do? So what does Jesus do? He tackles the assumption behind the question. He says, why do you call me good? And then he goes on to say, no one is good except God alone. In other words, what Jesus is saying is the only person good enough for eternal life is God. And your application to join the Godhead has just been revoked. In other words, you're not good enough. Now let's talk about where we might have gone wrong. So asking a question to unlock the assumption, that's the first thing. Secondly on this, asking questions can expose false logic. Sometimes questions can be asked in such a way that whatever we say in response to the question, we can be made to sound wrong. 
Uh, let me give you an example. Did you ever get asked, um, maybe when you were in the playground at school, um, the question, um, does your mother know that you're stupid? Now, how do you respond to a question like that? If you say yes, uh, you admit to being stupid. And if you say no, you're still admitting to being stupid, just that your mother doesn't know. You see, the question is setting up this false dichotomy, you might say, of two choices, but both of which are loaded uh, with a problem. Sometimes when people ask us questions, we find ourselves in a situation saying, I don't know how to answer that helpfully. Or maybe the problem is with the question and we need to ask a question to get uh, behind it. A friend of mine uh, was talking at an event and a very strong feminist came up afterwards and said to them, abortion, is it right or wrong? And my friend thought, well, what do I say in this situation? If I say it's right, I go against what the Bible says in my conscience. But if I say it's wrong, I know that she's immediately going to come back at me and attack me as someone who hates women and against people's right to choose and so on. So he turned it around and said, can I ask you a question? Um, when do you think it's right for me to kill somebody? Can I kill you? And she said, well, of course not. And then he said, well, what if you were only half your age? And she said, well, no. He said, well, what if you were only five years old? She said, no. What if you were two years old? No. He said, so we both understand that it's wrong to kill people. Yes. So the question he then said is whether an unborn baby is a real person. That's the question we need to ask, isn't it? So what he did is he took away this very hot question and then got beneath it to the real issue. Uh, and they got to a more helpful discussion. Thirdly, on this second point, um, asking questions ensures that we have conversations, not monologues. The problem when people raise questions, whether it's the question of suffering or hell or whatever, is there's so much that we might want to say on a particular topic to really do it justice. But if we say it all, we may not be helping the, the whole conversation. I guess we all know someone, um, you know, the kind of person where if you ask them a very simple question, they go on and on and on. Now, when you know someone is like that, does it make you want to ask them more questions or less? <laughs> well, it's always less, isn't it? In fact, you talk to them in statements because you don't want to give them the opportunity to go on and on and on. Now, if we go on and on in response to someone's question, that might close off opportunities for further conversation. So rather than launching into everything we know on a topic, as soon as someone asks us a question, why not turn it back? Ask questions. Make sure that they're doing as much talking as we're doing. Because at the end, they're much more likely to say, I enjoyed that. And I'd like to have that kind of conversation again. OK, so asking questions ensures conversations. And fourthly, asking questions um, helps us define the issue. Um, people often use terminology when they're speaking to us. And we shouldn't assume that when they use a word, a theological word or a Bible word, that they mean by that word the same as we mean. Let me give an example. I was getting my hair cut a while back. In fact, I need to get it cut again. But of course, the bar was all closed. So it's getting rather long. But I was getting my hair cut a while back and the lady cutting my hair discovered that I was a Christian worker and I spoke at events and we got into conversation. And she said, um, after a while, she said, I really admire your faith. I thought that was quite a nice compliment. She didn't admire my face, but I thought my faith is a good, good second best, isn't it? So, so she said, admire your face. And then I said to her, what would you say faith is? And she thought for a moment and she ummed and ahed. And then looking at me in the mirror, she said, well, faith is the ability to believe things that aren't true. And I stopped and I looked at her and I said, do you admire my ability to believe things that aren't true? And she thought for a moment and then she realised just what she had said. 
You see, if I had just said to her, oh, thank you for admiring my faith, you should have faith too. Well, I would be telling her to do something that I don't as a Christian think that she should do. So it's helpful to say, what do you mean by that? Uh, when you talk about um, uh, science and, and God and, and atheism, what do you mean? Why should we assume that when people use the word God, they're thinking about the God revealed in Jesus in the Bible? They might be thinking about a very different idea of God. So ask people what they mean by the words that they use. Number five on this point, asking questions exposes people's motive. Sometimes people might ask as genuine questions because they really want to know the answer. But sometimes people will ask questions because they're really trying to trick us. They're trying to find an excuse not to take the gospel seriously. And we need to be really wise in those situations. Actually, when Jesus responded with questions, it was often because he could see the motive behind the question being asked. So think of the two classic examples. Um, they come to Jesus and they say, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Of course, it's a trick question, isn't it? Because if he says you should, then the Jews will hate him because he's siding with the Romans. And if he says you shouldn't, well, then the Romans are going to string him up because he's undermining their authority. So what does Jesus do? Well, he says, show me a coin whose image is on it. Caesar's. OK, we'll give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. Now, interestingly, they never asked the question that they should have asked next, which was, OK, well, if the coin belongs to Caesar because it has Caesar's image on it, what belongs to God? I wonder if Jesus might have said, well, whose image is on you? God's more interested in you than your money. But of course, they didn't want to know the answer. They just wanted to trick Jesus. Or the time when they come and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Now, what does Jesus do? He turns it round, seeing the motive of their question. And he says, OK, I'll ask you a question. John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it from men? And we read that they go away and they confer between them. And they say, well, if we say it was from heaven, people will say, why didn't you listen to him? And if we say it was from men, people will stone us because they respect John as a prophet. So they come back to Jesus and they say, we don't know. You remember what Jesus said? He said, neither will I tell you. Have you ever realised that that's not grammatically correct in response to someone who's just said to you, we don't know? <laughs> you should actually say, I don't know either. But actually what they're really saying to Jesus is, we're not going to tell you. And so Jesus knows what they're thinking and he says, and I'm not going to tell you either. You're not stupid enough to ask my, answer my trick question and I'm not stupid enough to answer yours. So actually Jesus shows us that sometimes we need to be incredibly wise, particularly when people are trying to trick us, uh, when their motive is not for truth um, and questions can be helpful there. Number six on this, asking questions can intrigue people who are apathetic. Sometimes people's issue is that they're not antagonistic they're just apathetic they just don't care how do we respond to someone in that situation um, i was doing a mission in um, denmark a while back and i remember i was speaking on the resurrection of christ I'd, it was my final night of the mission i'd um, encourage people and appeal for response um, and then i was going around the tables as i often do at the end um, handing out little booklets to those who wanted to um, take the next steps to trust christ and i got to one table and there was a group of girls sitting there and i said um, would anyone like a booklet and uh, they all said no and then i said um, oh, did you did you find it helpful tonight did you find it interesting what did you think and this one girl i'll never forget she just looked at me and she said um, she said i didn't find it interesting at all i'm not into god it was a bit discouraging when you just kind of spent half an hour persuading people of the importance of the resurrection but i thought well what do i do here so i turned it around and i said well what are you into then 
because I've discovered that whilst not everyone is into God, or at least they don't think they are, everybody's into something. Everybody has something that they're passionate about, they think is important. So can we start there? So she said to me, she said, well, I think love is what's important, not God. I said, okay, can you tell me what love is? And she thought for a moment and she said, well, love, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, um, I don't know, she said. I said, well, can I give you a definition of love? So she said, okay, fine. So I said, well, love is a chemical reaction that's evolved in our brains to make us attracted to people, normally of the opposite sex, so that we reproduce and pass on our DNA. And perhaps because her boyfriend was sitting next to her, she looked at me and she said, that is not love. I said, well, actually, I don't think that's love either. But can you tell me why that's not love? And she thought for a moment and she said, no, I can't. I said, because actually, if there is no God, it's very difficult to explain love as anything more than just a chemical reaction in our brains. And she said, OK, then what do you think love really is? I said, well, actually, I think it's got a lot to do with God. She said, well, how? I said, well, actually, because the Bible says that God is love and that God is in his very being a living, loving relationship of three persons eternally loving each other and creating a world out of love to experience his love and to enjoy his love. And then she said, well, if that's the case, why is love so hard to come by? And of course, then we're into conversation about sin and so on. But what we had done, we had started with what she was interested in. And to use the words of the Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer, we'd taken the roof off her position, showed up the, the problem with, with her, her worldview, her, her system, and got her thinking about the need for a different answer or a different basis to what she cared about. So ask questions to intrigue the apathetic rather than starting with what we care about, how can we start with what they care about and build a bridge to the gospel? And then seventhly, on this long point too, asking questions can get to the heart. We don't just want to win arguments, do we? We want to win people for Christ. And so one of the things I find very helpful when we're talking in this way and answering questions and dealing with objections, not straight away, but after a while, to say to someone, if I could answer all of your questions satisfactorily, would you become a Christian or would you put your trust in Christ? If they say yes, then I normally say, great, what's your next question? Let's keep talking. But very often they say, well, no. And at that point, I want to say, OK, well, these things often aren't the issue, then, are they? What is it that's really stopping you from seriously doing that? And it's at that point that sometimes a different issue altogether comes out. Now, it doesn't mean that the conversation before that's been wasted. It's actually earned you the right to get to the deeper issue. And that's often what some of these what we might call apologetic conversations do. They get us to the heart and give us an opportunity to get to the really deep heart issues as we clear away some of the obstacles. Now, I said that was a very long point. The rest will go much quicker. But hopefully that's helpful. And if you forget everything else, point two might be the one to remember. Well, let's go through this quickly. Number three, be honest. We've had be wise, be questioned. Number three, be honest. If you don't know the answer to a question, don't don't make it up. It's much more helpful to be honest. I don't think people expect us to know everything about everything. So here's what you do. You say, that's a great question. I'm not sure how to answer it, but I will look into it and I will get back to you. Now, why is that a good thing to do? Well, firstly, you're being honest and you're not giving them a bad answer. Secondly, you're giving yourself another opportunity to bring up a spiritual conversation. It's great, isn't it? You can come back to them a week later and say, you know, that question you asked me, I've been thinking about that. And there you go. But also you will get to learn so much as you interact with people. I've learned so much by interacting with Muslims in this way, because Muslims will raise questions that I don't know how to answer. But it gets me going and studying stuff that I never would have thought about studying had I had I not been asked the question in the first place. So be honest if you don't know. Number four, 
be appropriate. Don't answer big questions with small answers. Now, what do I mean by that? Sometimes people ask big questions. Here's one of them. Do all religions lead to God? Now, that's very easy to answer in one sense, isn't it? You could just say no. <laughs> that, that would be an honest and truthful answer to the question. All religions don't lead to God. But think about it for a moment. If you just say to the average secular Western Brit, no, in answer to that question, what do they now assume about you and about the Christian faith? Well, they're probably thinking something like this. You're a narrow minded, ignorant, self-righteous, proud person who thinks that everyone else is going to hell. Now, last time I checked the fruit of the spirits, narrow minded, self-righteous, ignorant, None of them were there, were they? So what have you done? You've answered this question correctly, but now you've led them to think a whole load of things about you and the gospel that aren't true. So that's what I mean by saying don't answer big questions with short answers. You actually need to unpack that a bit further. What do people mean by that? And what do we mean when we say that all religions don't need to God? Come back to that later. Number five, be biblical. I find it so helpful to actually let the Bible answer the questions rather than just trying to answer them ourselves. And, and that's really helpful because it changes our posture rather than me being the one who has all the answers, trying to convince the ignorant person opposite me of my wisdom. I can say, look, we're both in the same situation, but I found that there is a place where I can find answers to these questions. And I'd love to look at them together. And it's just wonderful sometimes when you can open up a passage of the Bible, a particular verse that deals deliberately with that issue or that question and get people looking at the text of scripture together. It's really helpful. And sometimes it means that you can get Jesus to say the hard stuff for us. Um, and then it means that people's issues are with him rather than with us. So use the Bible. Number six, be focused. It's kind of connected to number five. What I mean is let's be focused on, on Christ, on Jesus. The danger in any of these kind of conversations, particularly on what we might call apologetics, is that we get bogged down philosophical conversation that doesn't really lead people to Jesus. But here's what I said at the beginning. Objections can be opportunities and they can be opportunities that get us to Jesus. So think about how we answer questions in a way that leads people to Christ. Maybe you want to do this when you think about some of those questions that you submitted earlier. But let me give you some examples. How do you know God exists? Well, there's lots of things you could say, aren't there? Uh, we could talk about issues of creation. We could talk about the moral argument for God. We could talk about an argument from the universal desire for religion or whatever. But why not talk about the God who's revealed himself in history in the person of Christ? That gets you straight into talking about Jesus, doesn't it? And that is the most compelling reason we have. To talk about other religions. How can other religions be wrong? Well, you could get bogged down in conversations about what Islam says about this or what Buddhism says. But why not talk about the uniqueness of Christ? Say, so look, there are lots of religions and they have lots of nice ideas. But can I tell you, there's one thing that I found in Christianity that I've not found anywhere else. I found a God who has revealed himself in person in, as a human being in the form of Jesus and a God who hasn't left us to try and earn our way to him, but a God who's come down and made it possible for us to know him by offering himself for us. Or if people ask questions about hell, again, we can say, here is a God who has taken the hell we deserve so that we don't have to. The only way to hell is to disregard what Christ has done for us. But God cares for us so much that he was willing to do that so that we might have to go there. Or even questions about homosexuality can be turned around to focus on the person of Christ. I was speaking at a, a lunch bar 
at a university, I think it was in Liverpool University a few years ago, and I just finished the talk and then up to me came several members of the LGBTQI society. And um, they hadn't even been in the talk, but they'd come up uh, with an editor, I think, of the student paper. And their first question was, uh, what do you as a Christian think about homosexuality? And what do you do in that situation? You know that whatever you say is going to be taken down in evidence against you. You might be leaving at the end of the week, but what are the Christian Union going to do is they have to pick up all the pieces and so on. And so rather than going into the specifics of the question, I said, I said, the Bible does have stuff to say about sexuality because God created sex and it's a gift for us and it's a good thing. But the Bible puts all of these commands in the context of a much bigger story, which is that we can know the God of the universe in Jesus and we were meant to have a relationship with him. And everything is to point towards that. And then I was able to talk a bit more about how actually the heart of the Bible storyline is is coming to know God in Jesus and how that becomes so wonderful. But actually everything else, in a sense, um, pales into insignificance in comparison. Now, sometimes it might be right to dig into the detailed specifics of that question. But in that situation, rather than getting sidetracked, I wanted to bring it back, bring it back to Jesus. At number seven, um, or we go to questions in a moment. Be gracious. Remember. Peter in first Peter he says um, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope you have but and then this is the important bit do it with gentleness and respect Uh, our manner is just as important as our method or our message and the danger is we can get the message right but our manner wrong Um, we can be too preoccupied with winning the argument but not winning the person now I'm not saying truth is not important it is but we speak the truth in love So let's think about having a a loving posture, which doesn't mean I have to always have the final word in a debate, uh, which means I don't have to respond to everything that someone brings up. I don't have to deal with everything in one conversation. I want to love people and be gentle and kind in the way that I react and, and respond to them. Remember, behind hostility sometimes is brokenness and pain. And if we can get behind that into the heart of the matter, then we can really help people. I remember speaking to to one person, um, I think it was again in Liverpool University, and they're incredibly hostile, asking all sorts of uh, hostile questions. And after a while, I'd asked him that question about, you know, if you could become a Christian, he said no. And then I just said, so what is it that's stopping you? And then he opened up about horrific abuse that he had experienced as a child at the hands of someone who claimed to be a Christian. And suddenly the whole tone of that conversation changed as he opened up about the brokenness and the pain. And we could just talk about that. So let's be gracious. Let's be gentle. We're there to love people, not just arguments. At number eight, nearly there, be positive. I remember speaking at a a university mission week um, a couple of years um, after starting out um, as an evangelist. And a good friend and mentor came to listen to the talk and the question time. And his response, I'll never forget after the question time was this. He said, you answered the questions very accurately, but try to be more positive. Because sometimes we can answer questions in a way which, yes, it communicates truth. But does it communicate that the gospel is good news? Because the gospel is good news, isn't it? So make sure that when we're responding to questions, people get a sense that this is good. Now, people's objections often assume that the gospel is bad news. So what we're trying to do is turn the whole thing on its head and turn it the other way around. So when people say, ah, it's so bad that there's only one way to God that you might claim that Jesus is the only way. We want to turn it around and say, isn't it wonderful that there is a way? There is a way that we can know God, that we have a God who's not left us to have to earn our way to him, but has done it all so that we can have this relationship and it's open to everyone. Turn it around positively. 
Again, if people are asking questions about hell, isn't it amazing we have a God who took the hell we deserve so that we don't have to? Isn't it wonderful that actually um, that doesn't have to be where uh, we end up because of what Christ has done? So turn these questions around and try and say something positive um, in response to it. And then number nine, finally, um, be prayerful. What we're engaging in is not just an exchange of words and ideas, but what we're engaging is actually spiritual warfare, a spiritual battle, isn't it, uh, for people's hearts. I love the story of Nehemiah. You remember Nehemiah goes before the king and the king says, um, uh, why are you looking sad? And Nehemiah thinks, well, I need to be careful what I say here because literally he can have my head chopped off. And so Nehemiah says, I pray to the God of heaven and I answered the king. Now, did he go away and have a prayer meeting? I'm guessing he didn't. Did he put his hands together and close his eyes? I'm guessing he didn't. I'm guessing it was an arrow prayer, probably Lord help. (laughs) But it was a sign of his dependence upon God before he responded to the king. And I've often found that a helpful thing when I'm in conversation, just to send up an arrow prayer that says, Lord, help. Help me to say something that will be helpful here. Help me to respond in a way um, that will really get um, to the heart and help me to connect um, with this person. Um, help me to understand where they're coming from. Uh, may what I say um, really unlock something for them. Um, so let's really pray as we do this. Obviously, we'll be praying all the time for friends and neighbours, I hope. But even in the midst of having conversations, um, let's do that. But let's remember that objections, as we said at the beginning, don't need to be obstacles to sharing the gospel, but they can be opportunities to share the gospel. Um, let me give you one example. Just this last week, I was sitting out on our balcony, uh, not today, of course, because it was chucking it down with rain, but a few days ago when it was lovely and sunny. Um, and um, uh, one of our neighbours has a son who comes to visit, well, kind of stand outside the balcony and chat. And he's probably about my age. Um, and he walks by and uh, we get into conversation as he goes by. Um, and he discovered what I did. And then he raised this objection. He said, oh, what do you think about the Old Testament? It's all a fairy tale, isn't it? Now, what did I think? I thought, fantastic. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a strange way in, but it's a great way to start a conversation. And we got to have a conversation. We talked and it was wonderful. And I was able to give him a couple of books. He's come back twice since to tell me what he's been reading and how he's been learning. He's dyslexic, so it takes him a while to, to read and so on. Uh, but um, that objection, as it were, became an opportunity for a conversation sitting uh, just on the balcony outside. And as we engage with people's objections, ultimately, it can be the way to leading people to Christ. So I remember speaking at a mission week in uh, Nottingham University a few years ago, meeting a lovely chap there called Rob. And um, he came to every lunch bar and every evening event that we did. And after everyone, he came up with a whole list of questions, um, literally written out in his notebook. And uh, we'd sit down and we'd eat the remaining sandwiches and we'd go through his questions one by one. And then the next day we'd come back and had a whole list more questions and so on. And I remember the Thursday lunchtime, I said to him, I said, Rob, um, what are your questions today? And he looked at me and he said, well, I think you've actually answered them all. I can't think of any other questions to ask. So I said, "Okay, what's stopping you then from putting your trust in Jesus and becoming a Christian? And he looked at me and he said, well, I'm not sure. He said, it's it's a big decision. I said, well, it is a big decision. I said, I'll tell you what. I said, it's the last day tomorrow. You go away for 24 hours and think of a decent reason why you shouldn't become a Christian. If you can't think of one by tomorrow night, then you should. (laughs) And he said, "Okay, deal. So we shook on it. He went away and the next night he came back. We had the talk and I went up to him straight away at the end of the talk because I wasn't going to let him leave before we had the conversation. And I said, um, I said, Rob, have you thought of a reason yet why you shouldn't become a Christian? He said, well, no, I haven't. So I said, well, 
I think you should then. And he said, well, what do I do? I said, well, we could pray. I said, um, and a friend of his was sitting next to him. I said, well, um, I could pray and then you could pray and then your friend could pray. We could have this done in five minutes. <laughs> so, so we talked together and he said, okay. And so I prayed and he prayed and his friend prayed. A week later, I got a text message from that friend and it was a picture of Rob sharing his testimony in the front of the Christian Union um, about how he comes to Christ. And it's wonderful to know that he's going on with Jesus today. So actually just patiently helping him through all of those objections was a way of helping him to come to that ultimate position of trusting Christ. Now, in a mission, you often speed up what can often take you know, a lot longer in chance conversations. But but let's see these as opportunities. What we're not what we're to do is just win an argument. We want to win people. But this can be a means for some people, at least, that we can really help them get to the gospel and get to Christ. So I hope that's helpful. I don't know whether questions have been coming through yet, but I'm going to hand back. Um, is it to Roger to start with? Um, and uh, we'll dive into those questions in a bit. Roger. You're on mute still, Roger. There yeah, great. That was Michael, that was really helpful. Very, very helpful. Um, and um, yeah, there was a lot there. I'm sure there will be a lot of questions. Uh, I'll ask one and I'll go over to Janice and she'll she'll have a number. But uh, somebody like me can can listen and think, oh, wow, but I don't have the quickness that Michael's mm-hmm. got or the um, the sharpness of mind, etc. Can we all? I don't know, ask questions in that way, because we, we know what we want to get across but mm-hmm. in a questioning way. Is that beyond my ability? What would you say? Yeah, no, good question. Well, let me answer it in form of a story, really. I, I, the, the thing that really inspired me to try and help answer questions was when I was probably about 14 or 15 years old. Um, we had set up a Christian union in our secondary school. It was a school of a thousand boys. Um, there were three Christians in the school, myself included, in this Christian union. They were the only Christians we knew of in the whole school. Um, so we used to run this Christian union. I was the president. My friend was the vice president. The other person was the secretary. And we'd meet to have a Bible study each week. But we thought this was a bit dull. So then we decided we'd have a grilla Christian event. So we'd basically invite anyone to come. And uh, we were a bit provocative in our advertising to try and, you know, kind of wind people up. And we ended up getting 70 or 80 people packed into the religious education room. The teachers scarpered, so we had the whole place to ourselves. But I got a friend of mine, um, who's now one of the elders of uh, the church in Leicester, where I grew up. And uh, he came uh, as an older Christian just to respond to the questions. And it was literally just an hour of Q&A uh, with a bunch of hostile teenage boys. Um, and I don't know whether anyone became a Christian, but... What I do know is that I was amazed by the way he was able to stand there and quickly, simply and warmly respond to questions, even hostile questions um, in that way. And I sat there and I thought, I couldn't do that now, but I would love to be able to do that. And I remember talking to him and saying, well, how do I get to do that? And he says, well, just talk to people. And when you don't know how to do it, think, OK, well, if I was to be asked that question again, how would I do that in the future? So really, that's what I've tried to do really for, for my whole life, which is engage in conversation with people who are not Christian, hear what people's questions are. And as almost always happens at the end of a conversation, when I think, gosh, I could have done that better, rather than moping off and thinking, well, I failed, thinking, OK, how would I do that better? Could I say it better? Could I have asked a, a better question or, or whatever? And can almost debrief yourself afterwards. Uh, because almost certainly you'll probably end up getting a similar question in the future. And that way you will be able to um, and also ask other Christians. So, yeah, if you've had a conversation with someone and you think, well, I really fluffed that again, rather than just kind of 
wallowing in self-pity think okay let's ask an older christian or a wise christian how would you have responded to that question mm. um, or maybe read a book on the topic or so on great thanks very much michael we're going to take questions from janice uh, around about quarter past we will finish but then if people want to stay on i'm going to breakout groups where we'll have uh, perhaps seven eight minutes of of prayer in small groups you're very welcome to have a sort of ps but janice um what um what questions have we got Okay, so I think everybody fired them off in the first five minutes. So what <laughs> would be good, Michael, if you don't mind, if I fire a couple of those, one or two of those questions back at you yes. and show us where you'd go initially, not yeah. you know the full-blown answer necessarily, but how would you turn that question perhaps into another question? So we'll start with the one on genocide. Why does God sometimes encourage or even command genocide, wiping out whole cities of men, women and children and animals? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, thank you. Just to say before I dive into that answer, if you've got questions, sometimes the trouble is you're so engaged in listening to something, you're not thinking of the questions. So if you've got questions, it's not too late to put them in um, that relate to what I've said rather than the initial questions you put in at the beginning, then do put them in and Janice will kind of give preference to those as they come in. But uh, what would I say in response to something like um, uh, the issue of genocide in the Old Testament? Um, Often that's a question people bring up as a kind of hostile objection. Um, and it's asked because they're trying to trick you. Not always, but in my experience, often it's a kind of like, this is my intention to try and show how evil and despicable God is so I don't have to believe in him, that kind of thing. And so that's me thinking about motive. Often that's um, coming. You can often hear it in the sound of people's voice and the way that they're talking to you when they raise that as an issue. Um, it's also worth thinking the kind of be appropriate principle there's lots of stuff you could say to answer that question. In fact, there's a lot of stuff you need to say to answer that question. And so it's going to be very difficult just to give a soundbite answer. Um, now, if someone's being really hostile and there isn't just a very neat, short soundbite answer, that's when it's really difficult. Because the moment you start trying to explain, you know, eight points about Old Testament uh, war, you know, they've picked up on something on point two and, and you went down a, a rabbit hole on, on that. I remember talking to one person, they said, um, well, what about all those wars and genocide in the Old Testament? You know, um, how could you believe in, in a God who commands all that kind of stuff? And I turned it around and I said, what do you think we should do about ISIS? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, what do you think we should do about ISIS? How do you think we should solve the problem of ISIS? Do you think we should go into Iraq and Syria and say, this is a few years ago, uh, and say, you know, can you all stop being so nasty to each other and just be nice? Well, if you do that, I'll chop your head off. <laughs> yeah, so, so, and then I said, look, if we face a problem in the 21st century of how to deal with evil of that form, let's not be too quick to judge how evil is dealt with three millennia ago. Because actually, there's a whole load of things that we need to bear in mind that are going on, not least the fact that these weren't nice, kind, peaceful nations that were minding their own business, but these were nations that were often sacrificing and killing their own children. Now, how do we deal with a nation like that? So in one sense, it wasn't an answer to the question, but it was responding with a question because the question was coming with a, a kind of hostile motive. Now, if people were more genuine and say, well, really, what do you think about that? I would say, look, I've got an answer, but it takes a while to explain. And then I probably want to explain a few points. I might want to explain um, that what's happening here is not so much genocide, but judgments. This is the judgments of God, of God upon evil nations 
and explain what some of that evil was, like I said, child sacrifice and so on. Um, it wasn't immediate, but it was patient. God waited for up to 400 years before he enacted that judgment. This is not some flying off the handle kind of anger. Um, it wasn't favoritism, but it was fair. So God didn't just judge the other nations, uh, but he also judged the nation of Israel when they adopted the same practices. So it wasn't that God was just loving one nation at the exclusion of the others. Um, it wasn't inevitable, but it was avoidable. Um, so think about Rahab. Um, who was part of the Canaanites, but she responded and therefore was spared because of that. Um, so there was obviously an opportunity that people could have avoided facing that judgment. And then I say, and it's not now, but it is a picture. And what I mean by that, in the Old Testament, we see pictures of God's judgments. And whilst God doesn't normally judge in that way now, that was a specific time in the Old Testament through a, a, a specific nation. It does remind us that there is a judgment to come. And actually all evil will be judged. And then, of course, you can bring it around and say, but at the heart of the Christian story is a God who was willing to take that judgment so that we don't have to um, and bring it back to the cross. But you see, I wouldn't be able to say all that if someone was being hostile because they would not let me get past point one. But if they're being more open, I'd, I'd have a chance to say more. So how do you know that God exists? What's the evidence? <laughs> OK, so if someone was saying that, Again, it depends um, where they're coming from. There, there are lots of things you could say. Um, we oft, I often, if I was giving a talk on this, would talk about um, why is there anything, not nothing? Um, how do we account for that? Why um, is this universe the way it is? You know, why is it so finely tuned for life? And um, that's a, a massive argument we could look at. We could look at um, the argument from morality. Why do we have the sense of right and wrong? Where does that come from? We could talk about this sense that there's never been a completely atheistic nation in history. There's this sense of the supernatural, of something more than the material. Um, and you can talk about all of those. But again, the danger is the minute I start on any of those points, you can get bogged down in a very philosophical conversation about creationism, about evolution, about um, objective morality and so on. Um, so like I said in the talk, what I'd really want to do is I'd say um, focus on Christ. But I don't want to ignore the fact that there are other things that people might want to talk about. So I might say something like this if it was conversation. I'd say, well, there's lots of things that might persuade me that God exists. The fact that the universe exists at all. The fact that the universe is so finely tuned for life. The fact that we have moral values. The fact that there is not a civilization that's ever been discovered that was completely atheistic. But the most compelling reason that makes me think that God exists is actually that God has stepped into human history in the person of Jesus and this man has split history in two, and in particular, the resurrection of Christ um, that happened in history. So what I'm doing is I'm kind of alluding to, to other things, but I'm not unpacking them in such detail that I'm going to get bogged down in them. And I'm trying to make the focus um, and the intention of what I'm saying and the person of Jesus. But I'm also deliberately dropping in something like and the historical evidence of the resurrection. I'm not going to unpack it because if I start saying it all, I'm talking too much. But I'm hoping that they might then say the historical evidence for the resurrection. What's that all about? And then, I'm, well, actually, did you? <laughs> and then you're on to a conversation, you see. So um, you can drop bait into conversation. I think it was Becky Manley Pippett who said God didn't make us hunters of men, but fishers of men. And if you're fishing, you can drop bait. <laughs> and I like that idea of, you know, just drop things in that you're hoping people might ask another question off the back of. Why aren't Christians active in social change, poverty, climate change, war, with other non-Christian activists? Okay, so why aren't Christians? Why aren't Christians yeah. more involved in, uh, in the social issues? Um, 
I think that would be a question where I just probably want to come back. I mean, sometimes you want to to be kind of very gentle and say, you know, that's a really good question. Thank you very much. You know, I really understand where you come from. Sometimes you can come back quite bluntly. And I think in that situation, I'd probably come back and say, but of course they are. Don't you realise that most of the massive social changes in history have been brought about as a result of the Christian faith? And if they go like, really? I say, well, like hospitals and schools and, you know, the abolition of child labour and, you know, welfare systems and, you know, uh, and just, just, you know, list some of them off, the abolition of slavery and so on. Um, because in many ways, people come up with this kind of stuff, but actually it's incredibly naive when you think about it. Um, and then I might throw in, you know, it's a fascinating book I've just been reading called Dominion by a secular historian. He's basically saying you can't really account for human rights, the Western world as we have it today, unless you understand how Christianity has shaped our world. Um, and then you might just want to throw in some current examples as well, because the danger is we kind of, you know, we show that Christianity only influenced things 200 years ago in the Victorian era. So you might want to say, but, but Christians are, you know, there's a Christian organisation that's working climate change at Russia. Um, there are Christians at the forefront of working against slavery and, and sexual exploitation. There are Christians doing massive work around the world and so on. Um, doesn't always get reported, of course, um, but um, there's an incredible amount of Christians who are doing that kind of stuff. One stat, actually, that I sometimes throw in. A number of years ago, there was a terrible earthquake in China. And uh, there's a massive um, response of people volunteering to help out in the aftermath of that, that earthquake. And fascinating statistic um, of that, the number of Christians who volunteered um, to help in that earthquake relief effort. And it was far, far, far higher than the general percentage of Christians in the Chinese population. In other words, it just showed that actually Christians were, I think it was about 10 times more likely um, to volunteer in that situation to help. Um, we don't want to say only Christians help. And we can say, you know, applaud people when they are helping in those ways. But just saying, actually, the Christian faith gives us even greater motivation to love and to care because we know where love comes from. A um, couple more quickly. I don't believe in God. So how would you continue that conversation? If someone said, I don't believe in God, yeah. Um, I think if I was turning this around in a question, just to go back to, to the principles we looked at, um, one of the issues we said was um, define the issue or de define what people mean by words. So when people say, I don't believe in God, I often turn it around and say, can you tell me which God you don't believe in? Mm. <laughs> and they say, well, what, what do you mean? So, well, you obviously use the term mm. God. What do you mean by God? And often what people end up saying is, well, basically some form of divine dictator, you know, a Hitler in the heavens or a Stalin in the sky um, who's there to make the rules and to, to punish people when they step out of line. And at that point, it's so easy just to say, well, you know what? I don't believe in that kind of God either. Can I tell you about the God I do believe in? Um, I think it was Pascal, the mathematician, who said, make religion attractive, religion he meant by Christianity in that specifically, he said, make religion attractive, uh, make good men wish it were true, and then show them that it is. Often we dive in with the evidential answers, let me show you why God exists. But when the problem is not so much people lack the evidence, but they don't want God to exist because of the concepts of God they got. So often diving into to what's really behind it there, um, I don't want to believe in God because he's like this. Okay, well, what is God really like? Um, so find out what it is that's really stopping them. And sometimes it might be a lack of evidence, um, but more often than not, it might be something else that's the barrier. Um, what about babies and children? 
Why doesn't God make it clear where babies and children go when they die? Will they go to heaven if they've had no chance to make a commitment to Jesus? Yeah, so um, what about babies and children? Um, one of the things I sometimes do in response to a question, this wasn't one of the uh, principles I put down here, although it is something that a friend of mine noticed I do when I do Q&As at university, mm-hmm. is to dig the hole deeper before you try and get out of it. And that is sometimes people raise a question, and if we're too quick to try and respond to it, then actually people don't feel that we've really felt the weight of their question. So sometimes to reiterate the question and almost make the question harder and to express it in the strongest terms can help people be more willing to listen. So, for instance, if someone said that, I'd say, you know, that's a really good question. It does seem incredibly unfair that God would send children or babies to hell because they've not responded to the gospel when they weren't even old enough to understand the gospel. I said it also makes me think about, you know, what about people who live in parts of the world who haven't you know, had the opportunity to hear the gospel in the way that we have explicitly and so on? Um, wouldn't it be unfair of God to punish them for, for, for not doing something they weren't able to respond to or hadn't heard about and so on? Kind of dig the hole a bit deeper and really get to the nub of the issue, which is the fairness of God, the justice of God. That's that's the real issue, isn't it? Um, and then there's a few things I'd, I'd probably say in response to it. Um, I think one of the things I'd want to say is um, one of the things we can trust from what we see of God revealed in the Bible is that he's completely just and fair. Um, to quote from the Old Testament, shall not the judge of the, uh, the whole earth do right? That's one of the things we can trust in when we don't know specifically what exactly happens in any given situation. And I also allude to that Old Testament story. You know, when David loses the child's, um, that's born to Bathsheba, and he says, um, you know, when the child dies, and then uh, David is, is so upset, but then the child dies, and he gets up, and he almost kind of carries on with life, and, and people are surprised, and he says in those words, um, he will not return to me, but I will go to him, um, and maybe that's an indication of David's faith and trust, that actually he will see that child again um, one day, and so I think I'd certainly want to reiterate, I don't believe that just because all children a child dies, it means that they're automatically in hell because they didn't articulate or couldn't understand the gospel in the way uh, that we can today. But as with the question about people who haven't heard, one of the things I would always want to do at the end is just say, we can trust God to be fair and just in those situations, but the question is, what are we going to do with what we have heard? Because we are in a position to, to make a decision and, and we're the only, you know, ultimately our response is the only one that we have control over. Um, so what are we going to do with Christ? We can trust God to be fair with that. Um, here is a God who is willing to lose his own son for us. That's the kind of God he is. We can trust him. Uh, but what are we going to do in response to it? So don't allow it to become a kind of excuse um, to let us off the hook. You're um, experienced enough to know when people are just trying to trick you with red herring questions. How do you deal with them? How do you... Did you just try to end the conversation and move on to somebody who's got a real question that they really need in the answer? Yeah. So people are trying to trick. I I think even in those situations, I say, well, it's an opportunity still that I can use, but I need to be wise in the way I respond to it. Um, so I don't, I would never just end the conversation. I'd always want to respond somehow. Um, now I need to be wise. So think of how Jesus responded to people when their motive was to trick him. It was always a kind of, often at least uh, answering a question with a question 
<clears throat> sometimes diving into a big long answer when you know the motive is hostile is not the helpful way to go. But I do want to try and use it to open up a conversation. And normally the conversation with someone who is hostile will open up as I ask questions back. Yeah, what do you think? And try and get them to see some of the inconsistencies in their own thinking. Um, so, so I wouldn't not have a conversation with a hostile person, but I, I would try to be wise in the way that I respond um, in that situation. Um, and you've got to also pray for wisdom in that situation. That there are times when I'll stop a conversation after a while. So it doesn't mean I'll go on forever. You know, I've had conversations with atheists in universities and, you know, you could stay there all day. And I think, well, actually, this isn't going to help them. It's not going to help me. And I'm just going to get exhausted. And actually, sometimes there'll be other people that in that room I'd be better off talking to. So I may speak briefly with them, but say, you know what? But even that, I often use that question as a kind of um, as a way in to say, look, I'm happy to answer your questions. But can you say before I do, um, if I could answer this satisfactorily, would you become a Christian? That often gets down to the nub and the motive. Um, and and you can deal with it. I remember saying to one guy, just to give you a uh, an example of this, in Poland, and um, he got all sorts of questions about the New Testament and the reliability of the Gospels and et cetera, et cetera. And I said to him, look, I said, if I could show you compelling evidence that the Christian faith was true, that the Bible was reliable, that Jesus rose from the dead, would you become a Christian? And he said to me, but you can't. I said, no, but if I could, at least in theory, um, show that, would you become a Christian? He said, but you can't. I said, no, no, but, but I said, if I could. And he said, but you can't. And I said, well, that's why our conversation is a waste of time. I'm going to move on. And he looked at me and he said, really? I said, because you've just told me that you've already discounted the very possibility that I might have anything to say that would change your mind. So there's no point in having this conversation. And that kind of drew him up short. And then we actually did have a bit of an interesting conversation. But just, just trying to show it back, push it back to, to reveal the motive can be helpful. Right, Michael, indeed, um, that's really, I, I found what you had to say, Michael, very, very helpful. 